0: Oh, <laughs> With strategies for a sustainable career while blasting stereotypes, and to bring you tried and true wisdom from his colleagues in this crazy business we call music. Welcome to the
1: Career Musician Podcast with your host, Nomad. Today, I am talking to a true bona fide rock and roll star. His name is Kevin Martin from Candlebox, and I love when you go to CandleboxRocks.com, their webpage. It simply says candle box. It's called rock and roll. Look it up. Well, today, you don't have to look it up because you're going to hear directly from Kevin himself. And let me tell you, he's got an awesome story as the reluctant frontman and singer of this 90s kick-ass rock band Candlebox with several Billboard hits, including Far Behind, You, Cover Me, and the list goes on. Today, Candlebox is still out there grinding. And as soon Soon as we get over this little quarantine phase, they are slated to hit the road again, so be sure to check them out. In the meantime, check out Kevin as he talks to the career musician about what it's really like to sell over 4 million records, tour the world with the biggest bands and artists like Metallica, and basically have a hand in writing the rock and roll 90s. Welcome to the Career Musician Podcast with a true bona fide rock star, Kevin Martin of Candlebox and many other fames. Thanks, my man. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. So Kevin and I are just sitting here talking about, as we pour ourselves a little whiskey sip, salute, my friend. We're talking about the fact that we signed up to be musicians so we didn't have to deal with all the tech shit and all the engineering stuff, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yet we find ourselves in this middle, of, in the middle of this pandemic, doing tech stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not the job I signed up
2: for. Yeah, it's a strange thing. I uh, I learned to do Pro Tools years ago. I did it a lot. I did my um, my first solo album, Kevin Martin, the Highwatts, uh, on on my my own pro tools rig and I got really into it and I got really into mixing and, and, uh, and producing and stuff. And then I fell off of it. Uh, and, and I never really went back to it and it is so advanced now, like resetting up my logic was like, wait, so the, this USB duet thing goes into that. And then that speaks to this and this is supposed to speak to that, but I don't know. It's crazy. And the thing is, is it's so much easier now than it was right. when I knew how to use Pro Tools because I literally am running this Duet Apogee thing into my computer. And it's, I mean, Apogee, They're the best converters in the world. So it's like, I right. mean,
1: this is crazy talk. This is crazy Right. Talk. No, absolutely. I love it. I, I think it's cool because it's a convergence of super high-tech uh, studio quality gear – with the uh, comforts and convenience of being at home, you know? So I totally get it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, back in, uh, let's see, back in the early 2000s, I was into digital performer as my DAW, you know, my digital audio workstation. Uh, and then I got, had a buddy who turned me on the to Pro Tools. So I've been a Pro Tools head. But regardless, it doesn't matter what you use, the concept is the same. And we're going to talk about this later on in the interview. You know, methods are always changing and evolving, right? But the principles remain the same. So there you go. Well, dude, first of all, how does a rock star handle dealing with a pandemic? <laughs> it's making me crazy.
2: I was just talking to my my bass player, Adam. I haven't been home this much, this long, frankly, uh, uh, since I was like 18, 19 years old. I mean... Uh. Wow. The band started when I was 20. Uh, and, you know, it was practices and, you know, and traveling around and playing shows. I mean, the, and even – and I've only been home really a month and a half. I had some shows in February in, in Florida. Okay. But – um I mean, you know, I I ended touring in November of last year. I went to Australia with my family for Christmas, came back. I had a whole month of January off. I finished the record uh, vocals in Houston over that period. Flew out, did some dates. But now that I'm going to be home from like that February, I think the last show was February 29th until um, maybe August 1st is freaking me out because I don't sit well in this environment. You know, I'm a I'm not used to this, and I I'd said to my wife and my son, it was about about the fifth day in to this whole thing. I said, "Listen, I'm gonna have to tell you something right now," because we had one of those moments, you know, at the dinner table, and um, and I'm like, "I'm a vagabond, okay? My whole life has been about travel. I don't sit around. I don't do this." And you guys are gonna have to understand that. And they looked at me like, "Are you out of your fucking mind?" And I and I I just was like. I'm not going to do well with this at all. I have, I probably own stock in five or six different whiskey companies now. Um, (laughs) I, I, you know, it's really, it's really strange. It's strange to be um, a music, a touring musician. That's my career now as a touring musician Mm. uh, and, and being stuck at home. It's very, very
1: uh, surreal. I I'm laughing out of the self-identification aspect <laughs> and the fact that I love how you 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 know you're illustrating this it's so true. I mean look, we're all as the, one of the reasons why I took the moniker nomad is because as musicians we're all modern day nomads. Yeah. And you use the term vagabond, that is what we are. We're used to doing that. So this is an epic stretch of being at home, right?
2: Yeah, and it is an epic in in so many ways. I mean, you know i I think about you know the isolation when you're on tour back in the '90s when you know when you were on a tour bus and fans couldn't get to you. The the accessibility was not there, uh, and you had those moments. I I always flash back to this the first tour in the van, you know, in in '93. We were we were out touring with Greta and. You know, there were eight of us in a, in a 15 passenger van. For some reason, everybody in the band felt they needed to fucking tech. I don't know what that was about, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, I used to sit there and, and, and I put my headphones on and I would just listen to music because I couldn't sleep because we'd be bouncing down the road, you know, and, and whatever. And, and I remember Space Boy by the Smashing Pumpkins came on and it, it, it was so emotional for me because it was the first time where I really felt alone and isolated and and um even though i was surrounded by seven of my best friends to be perfectly honest with you you know um i really felt isolated and i haven't felt that way until now and um you know it's just uh it's 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 a very very strange and and i used like i said epic because the fact that something like this can take me back to that moment in my life um is is really really surreal,
1: you know. That's kind of cool, though. I like the fact that you know. Again, I know this is an isolated incident and it's truly unique, but the fact that it brought you all the way back to those memories is pretty cool. And hold on a minute. Let's talk about a fifteen-passenger van. Let's talk about Greta. You said? Did you say Greta? Okay. No. So tell us about that. And then the fact that you said each band member needed their own tech. I love that. So there's so many, right there in that one phrase, you said so many things just that I want to talk about. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, just So, yeah, so t- there's a tell band? me, wherever you want to start, tell me, uh, Well, we, describe we, that moment. We, we had, we'd
2: come across, um, this band Greta, um, through a friend of ours and we were going out to do our first tour, uh, on our, on our debut album. The record hadn't even come out yet. Um, so we were starting in May and the record was coming out in June and, and, um, we had a friend who was really, really into them. He had signed their publishing, uh, and, um, he's like, you should take this band out. They're really good. Uh, the, the, the singer's name was Paul. He's uh, since passed away from, um, uh, just he had, you know, crazy drug problems when he was growing up and he, he ended up passing away from hepatitis C, but, um, or complications from it. But, um, this band, it was Paul, um, this, this drummer named Scott Carnegie, who still lives in Chicago. And i I see him every time I go through Chicago, uh, this bass player's name was Dan and the guitar player's name. I want to say was Grant. I, I, I can't remember his name exactly, but they were just really interesting kind of alt rock um, fucked up fusion rock band and Paul was the singer, songwriter, and he would come out in dresses or he'd come out with lipstick smeared or makeup smeared. He was really e- eclectic and eccentric and their music was amazing and and we fell in love with them and we took him out on the road for I think uh, 12 weeks. And we just had the best time with these guys. And um, we were in a van. Uh, They were in a van and they had actually been touring. uh, uh, I think at this point when coming out with us, they'd been out for almost six or seven months by themselves. Um, And, and just really, really eclectic and interesting. And it was a weird tour because they were totally alternative. Scott Carnegie would play drums naked. He would climb up on stage and take his clothes off and sit down and the audience would be like, did he just take his clothes off? And got arrested once in Indianapolis for doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were just kind of out there, you know, uh, very similar to the Chili Peppers and kind of their playful nature uh, as a band uh, and their banter as a band on stage and um, and just quirky, interesting dudes. And um, like I said, you know, we were in a van and um, it just ha- – it turned out to be kind of one of those – really memorable periods of my life, you know, where I, uh, I, I remember playing in Madison, Wisconsin with them to five people. And those five people were the bar staff, you know? Uh, and those are great memories. I mean, you know, that's, you're trying to break a band, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, make a name for
1: yourselves and you play to the fucking bar staff you know. Uh, so so this is a perfect segue, man. Look, as uh preteens and young teenagers, when the music bug bites us, we all have this vision, this dream of making it, quote unquote, being on stage, playing in front of tens of thousands of people. Talk about that transition of what you just described you know, traversing the country in a 15-passenger van with a bunch of guys, you're like, oh, my gosh. Of course, you love the guys, but you can't stand them because you're in such close quarters, number one. Number two, you go to these little freaking, uh, you know, bumfuck Egypt towns, and you play to a bar staff of five, right? Like you said. Then all of a sudden, it seems like, I'm, I'm sure it's it's got this kind of twilight zone element where now you're playing in stadiums and arenas to tens of thousands of people. What's that transition like? I mean, because remember, only a small percentage of human beings get to experience that. So let's say, let's just say a million people had that dream, hypothetically. A million people had that dream. Well, only 10 of those million get to experience it. So what's that like? Well, I mean,
2: it was pretty incredible. You know, we... we we were fortunate enough to, to do that tour with Greta and then the living color guys um, took wow. us out. Um, I can't remember which record it was. It was the one that followed up vivid um, and they took us out for six weeks and they were, I, I mean, I still keep in touch with Corey. I still talk to Corey all the time. Um, awesome. And we just played with them actually this past summer in, um, in Europe, we did a couple of dates with them and it was great to see the guys and Vernon, all of them were just like, God, how are you guys, man? Can you believe this shit? We're, you know, we're so much older. I mean, it was 1993 that we did those eight weeks with those guys and we're still friends. You know, that's kind of crazy. That's awesome. Um, but they took us out and we went from, you know, the five people a night to right. playing about 1,500 to 3,000, depending on where we were at with them. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, that was a, little bit of a transition. We had had shows in Seattle that we played to 1500 to 2000 people. So it wasn't that much different because we, because we were kind of exploding on the scene in 92, 93 uh, there was a radio station in Seattle. that's still around called KSW that used to do this thing called the pain in the grass, which was at the, um, the, the um, Seattle center. And that's where they had bumper shoot every year. So it was a free concert. So you'd played at 5,000 people. Um, and okay. it was, you know, so we'd experienced that, but not not on somebody else's stage. Um, so that's where uh-huh. the difference happens. And when you're opening for a band like Living Color and then the following um, year, we we started our, our touring with uh, Rush and went from, you know, 2000. Now we're playing with Rush to, you know, 15,000 a night. That's where the major jump happens. We learned a lot from touring with Living Color. Those guys helped us kind of establish our stage presence, if you will, and, mm. and the importance of um, respecting the audience and, and what they're giving back to you because it wasn't our crowd uh, and, and playing to what we know they're looking for. Uh, you know, a lot of bands would say that they didn't do that kind of thing. Um we did you know we we respected who we were opening for and we respected those those um those audiences uh, i think
1: that speaks to your longevity
2: i think so i mean i think yeah. that's why we're still around you know of right. course far behind in you those two songs still pay the rent but um when it comes to the the performance of the band you know we we established that a long long time ago and And then we went out with Rush and it, you know, that was a big game changer because those guys used to watch us every night and they would sit and they would come to our dressing room after the show and talk to us about, hey, maybe, you know, this song would work here. And, you know, we we like the cover song, but maybe lose it from the set because, you know, you're really a great band and you don't need to be playing
1: cover songs and, you know, stuff like that. Okay. All right. We have. I'm so sorry. We have to hone in on that. So. I was the music director for Kenny Babyface Edmonds for 10 years, right? Uh, I was in his band for 12 years, but music director for 10. I swear to you, Kevin, every night we would do an after-show debriefing and we would sit for 30 minutes to an hour talking about the things that you just mentioned. So I want people to understand... I don't care if you're a hobbyist, a music enthusiast, just a big fan or an actual career musician. Let's talk about that because a lot of people don't realize before and after the show, there's so much strategic elements. There's so many strategic elements that come into play. So I really think that's, pardon my French, man, that's effing cool that Rush would sit down with you on a nightly basis and talk about that. Yeah, well, I mean- that had. Pretty shocking. You know,
2: that had to be it, surreal. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, and this is back when Alex was still drinking. So, <laughs> so get, Getty came in one night and was like, hey, listen, don't let Alex come in and have it to your scotch because we used to drink, we would get Oban 14 on our, on our rider. But yeah, I mean, you know, you, uh, you get those, you, you get those kinds of musicians who care that way. And
1: right. I, I. It's interesting. It's a process.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting that you you mentioned that you and Babyface used to do this after the shows with the with the entire band. My guys didn't like that I continued that. Um mm. we if we had a bad show, no one came in the dressing room. The four of us sat around and talked and they didn't want to talk about it. And I'm like, "Listen, there's reasons why we're doing this. The guys in Rush used to do this. We That's we right. learned from them." And um and I'm not, you know, I don't pull any punches I, and I'm, I'll be the first one. If I fuck up, I'll stop a song on stage. You know, I I'll be like, Hey, I, I we got to start that over. I, I totally screwed that up and I'll let the audience know as well. Like, I'm like, that's on me. We're going to fix this. Uh, and I still do it. I, I did it in Florida, not, you know, four weeks ago. Um, I love that, but I, I don't pull punches and I, and I will be like, that was fucking horse shit. And I don't ever want to hear that ever again. You know, right? right. what were you thinking? Like we're, and, you know, Candlebox, the original band, Peter, Barty, and Scott, and myself, none of us, this should never have worked. We were not friends. I didn't know Barty. I didn't know Pete. I knew Scott mm. vaguely from bands that he was playing in. It was a, the, the happiest accident the four of us ever had. And in that, we had to learn about one another over the course of basically four fucking one year of being on the road. You know, it was one thing to be at home in Seattle and playing shows and then go home to our own houses, our own apartments, whatever, and then go make a record. It's another thing to be in a van for nine months with one another when you don't really know what that person is like. Uh, And I'm OCD, man. So uh, that, that first nine months was fucking awful. But uh, back to what I was saying is when you finish that show and you want to talk about that stuff, it's imperative that you allow one another that freedom to to discuss it. And they didn't want to do it.
1: Damn, we now, do it now. The band I have now, we do it. Yeah. Okay, I was just going to say. So, as the um, project leader, or you know, the band leader, dare I say, or the lead vocalist, or you know, however you want to look at it. How did you deal with that? Did you, I mean, were there screaming matches or was it like, yo, here's how I feel. This is how you feel. Let's talk tomorrow. We'll come back to it. Let's sleep on it. I mean, you know, what was the dynamic between you guys?
2: It really depended on how much cocaine was involved. I mean, it, you know, if, if Pete and Barty were lit up, then it wasn't a good conversation.
1: Right. If it, If they weren't, we could talk about it. This is real shit. Let's talk about that fact. I'm so glad you brought that up. A lot of times, sex, drugs, rock and roll gets totally blown over. Everybody just, oh, what? That never happened. What? But it fucking happened. It was real. It was part of life. We know as creatives, substances uh, can oftentimes be the greatest attribute to our creative process, right? I mean, so... It's it's interesting and how did that play into your life? And obviously you are successful and you're well put together and you have <laughs> a great life. You know what I mean? Like you didn't end up in the ditch. So how did you balance those things? Because it can be a challenge.
2: Well, I wasn't I wasn't doing drugs. I quit doing drugs when I was um eighteen. So Okay. For me, you know, I you know, I should say I never really liked cocaine. It wasn't my thing, anyway. So, you know, okay. if you if you had hallucinogens, I would take those all day long. I loved acid. I loved ecstasy. I love I love mushrooms, and I love that they're coming back in chocolate. I mean, <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever. I just did those two nights in Florida on mushrooms. And it was the greatest experience ever. But cocaine is a different beast. Um, volatile. Yeah. It, it is. It is the. You know, the Dewey Cox story, it takes all your bad feelings and turns into great feelings. Dewey, you don't want none of this shit. And he's like, I think I want some of that cocaine. But cocaine is, if you don't know the person that you're around when they're high on drugs, and if it's cocaine, and you have no relationship with them prior to this, it's very difficult to be around that person. Because they're they're the reason they're doing the cocaine is they're running from something. And they're running really, really fast. And um, and somebody else is doing it with them just to keep up with them, just to say, I did cocaine with this guy. Or in the case where it was Barty and Pete, it was just because they wanted to get high. And Barty liked doing cocaine just because it was fun. Pete really liked cocaine.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and he became very defensive on it. And so that's where the fights would start. Uh, he's sober now. Uh, I think going on twenty years, um, but you know there were moments where I just wanted to fucking kill him, and mm. you know because the cocaine was sucking all the feeling out of him, and he had the whatever darkness that it was in him that he was trying to run from made him such a brilliant guitar player, and in um, those moments where. I would say to him, just don't do that. Just play the fucking guitar. That's where the magic was. And it's really hard to tell somebody that when they don't know you and they don't trust you, even though you've just sold 4 million fucking records together, Um, it's really, really hard to have that conversation. And it ended yeah. up destroying the band, you
1: know? Wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For it, it, a minimum of six years, at least.
1: No, I, I, I get it. I totally get it. I, I appreciate that um, that peer into the real shit, man. It, it's amazing. So look, you just mentioned it. Four million albums. What was that like? Does your manager call you and say, bro, did you see the show? Like, how did that happen? What was the the unraveling of that whole process? So that that tour we did that summer of 93, by the time we came home to
2: Seattle after the, the um, Living Color Dates, you had been released as a second single. So now change had done whatever it, it it got us to like, I think actually a hundred thousand records, which was kind of crazy. The video was MTV was playing the video, uh, Matt Penfield. uh, He was a radio DJ. This is prior to him taking over the 120 minutes um, gig. He had played change at this little tiny radio station in New York um, on long Island. And just blew us up and it, and it got a lot of traction for us on the East coast. So by the time we came home from the living color tour in um, the fall of 93, we did three nights sold out at the Paramount theater in Seattle, um, which the only other person who had sold out multiple nights was Madonna and she had done two nights. So we hadn't even sold a half a million records yet. And we come home, we do three nights sold out. Now this is back when the Paramount hold uh, held 2,800 people. So, Pretty impressive for a band that had only sold at that point like 150, 200,000 records. Yeah, so that's um, like
1: 9,000 people that came out to see you.
2: Yeah. And, and they sold out in 15 minutes, all three shows. See, that's nuts. That's yeah. incredible. Uh, so we knew something was happening. Uh, you had been released as a single, it was starting to get a lot of traction. Uh, and then we start the rush dates. Um, by the time we get to Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, we're playing, uh, I want to say it's the Ogden. Um, theater in, mm-hmm. in Cleveland. This is March 22nd. I know it, March 22nd to 25th. Uh, and our Warner Brothers rep comes to our, um, comes to our dressing room and brings us gold plaques. So now we have a half a million records right. sold and I'm kind of like, this shit's for real. And oh, that's so cool. We're just about to release far behind. And we had shot the video two weeks prior to getting the gold plaques in Seattle with one of my favorite uh, directors, Nick Egan, who had done a ton of the Oasis videos and, uh, and just a really incredible guy. So you feel the momentum happening, but you know, you think to yourself a half a million records, how the fuck did we get here? It hasn't even been a year yet. So by the time the record's been out a year, we're about to start touring with Metallica and Madonna invites us to Maverick records at, uh, uh, eight thousand beverly Boulevard and gives us um platinum plaques uh in in um May of nineteen ninety
1: four so bro say that again Madonna inf- say that again
2: yeah yeah Madonna Madonna gave us our platinum plaques I mean it was her label you know we signed him at Mavic records which was Madonna's oh. label and and she had a party for us and and um and yeah and so you hit a million and, and then you go out with Metallica and you do a summer run with Metallica and you're selling 150, 175,000 records a week. And then you do Woodstock 94 and then you go off to Europe with Henry Rollins in September and you do three weeks with Henry Rollins and the Rollins band. And then you come back and you finish the year with the Flaming Lips and Mother Tongue uh, for 12 weeks. And that's your first year and a half of, a fucking touring rock band that's now sold three and a half million records at that point.
1: Okay. Let's talk about that. You get home from that. <laughs> run drop. That You just described. I can't type fast enough to keep up with that shit. What do you do when you get home from that run?
2: <laughs> uh, that's when you do really stupid shit. Um, okay. <laughs> that's, you know, that's where the problems start. You know, that the, there's a lot of money and yeah. of course now you can buy a lot of drugs and, um, Barty was buying a house. Pete was buying a house. Scott was buying a house. Barty was thinking about getting married. You know, um, nobody really wants to focus on the the most important thing we have to do, which is follow up that debut album. Um, and there's a lot of distractions. And there's also a, an enormous backlash for us. I remember the second night of the – I'll go. I want to go back to the Paramount shows because this is kind of important. I don't know if you've ever heard of a band called Grunt Truck. Grunt They were a, they were a Seattle band, um super fucking great. I loved them. Um they uh I mean really one of my favorite bands kind of in that era. Uh Ben, the singer, um, has, has recently passed away from leukemia. But I I walk into this bar called the Frontier Room. It's on First Avenue, and it was kind of the you know, where you would go and you would hang out with Jerry or Lane or 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 Mike Starr or, you know, whatever musician at the time wasn't touring. It was kind of one of those bars. It was a dive bar. Right. And uh, and it was amazing. It was great. I mean, the vodka soda was a dollar 50, I think. Um,
1: Who doesn't love that?
2: Exactly. Um, So I walk in and I'm with my buddy Dave um, and Davis, Dave Hillis, who's a a producer now uh, and actually had worked as an engineer on a lot of the Earl. He was a Pearl Jam 10 engineer he was the Alice in Chains, um, I think, dirt engineer, or facelift engineer. He was he worked at London Bridge Studios, and he was in a band that was opening for us at the Paramount called Sybil Vane. So Dave's like, let's go down the frontier room and 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 hang out and have a cocktail. This was after the second night, so we walk in and Ben's sitting there, and Dave's like, oh my god, it's Ben from from Grunt Truck. I was like, I want to meet him. So he takes me over. He's like, hey Ben, uh, you know what's up? How you doing? Ben's like, oh, blah, blah. you know, he's kind of one of those guys, and and. Um, Dave's like, this is Kevin from Candlebox. He wanted to meet you. And and Ben's like, how the fuck did you sell out three nights at the Paramount? And I was like, (laughs) I I go, dude, I honestly don't know. And he goes, yeah, I don't either. Wouldn't even shake my hand. Wow. Had no desire whatsoever to have any sort of conversation with me. And that was really kind of the beginning of that relationship with Candlebox in Seattle. So when we came home in 94... Um really I think the four of us were kind of like what the fuck why do we why are we even here you know nobody cares about us in this city uh except our
1: fans but hold on that is the ongoing artistic struggle of oh my gosh I'm amazing oh my gosh I suck oh my gosh this is great oh my gosh this is terrible right that roller coaster I don't have that I mean, I, I okay.
2: uh, and, and I don't mean, I don't mean it like, yeah, yeah I yeah. don't, I don't have that. I suck. I'm amazing. Uh, I'm brilliant. I'm terrible. I don't have that. I'm a, I'm a reluctant lead singer, man. I was a drummer that got stuck with this job. So for me, and and like I said earlier, I was a vagabond. I was born in Chicago, in Elgin. Two months after I was born, we moved to Aurora. A, a year after that, I'm living in Indianapolis and I come back, and my parents moved back to Illinois and then we're in St. Joe, Missouri, and we're Kansas City, Kansas, and we're Hutchinson, Kansas, and we're San Antonio. I don't remember any of the shit other than I was always moving. So for me, I don't have that kind of weird kind of mentality where I don't fit in because I always had to kind of make friends. So I don't really give a shit whether somebody likes my band or my music. I just care whether they like me and we can have a conversation
1: I love so that. I, that's so fucking hardcore, down to earth East Coast, baby. Well,
2: well, I don't know about. I mean, I, I mean I'm a Midwest kid, so I don't know if that's what it is, but I've never really had that kind of I'm no good, nobody likes right. me. I've never had that. And 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 I know I, I have a ton of friends who do. Um I just don't give a shit. You know, I I mean, I make music. It's been my living for going on 30 years now. And and All I care about is that the fans come to see the shows. When we write songs, we write them for us. I don't. I no longer try to write worrying about my guitar player, or worrying about my drummer, or worrying about my bass player. I just worry about whether or not the audience is going to like the songs.
1: I I have to focus on that because out out of some of the questions that I typically ask in an interview, um, one of the things is your principles and methods. And I love the fact that you just described your motto, the reason why you make music. You make music for yourself. You make music that you know you're gonna enjoy. And I think a lot of the struggle, being a creative type, an artist, uh, it's internal. Oftentimes we ask ourselves, I think because of external influences, is this commercial enough? Will this sell? Is this marketable? But what you just said as a principle, I think is amazing. Can you expound on that? Making music for yourself. Well, I, you know, I, yeah,
2: sure. I can expand on I mean, listen, the danger, the danger of rock and roll is gone. And the reason it's gone is because musicians have lost the freedom to do what they're supposed to do, which is to go, fuck you. This is what I do. And if you don't like it, I don't care. Whether it's, you know, tweeting it or writing songs, you know, and my favorite band of all times is The Clash. And Joe Strummer, hands down, was the biggest uh, anti-corporate finger-to-the-fucking-world musician I've ever known and ever loved. Uh, and, And I, you know... And I, and I've toured, like I said, I've toured with Rush, I've toured with Aerosmith, I've toured with Metallica, I've toured with Flaming Lips. You know, I've, I've met a a million brilliant artists. Um, None of them have that uh, motto of fuck you, I don't care, like Joe Strummer did. Um, But that being said the danger of rock and roll is gone. And the reason that it's gone is because musicians try to write what they think people want to hear. And they're trying okay. to write a hit song. And every band that ever, you know, ever writes to me on Facebook or Instagram is like, Hey, you know, what kind of advice can you give me? I was like, stop trying to sound like somebody. You send me your music and you sound like Nickelback. You send me your music. You sound like Lincoln park. You send me your music. You sound like uh, the national. You send me music. You sound like whoever it is. I can pick it out instantaneously. I can pick up the melodies. Like, like that. I hear it. I go, I know what song that is. And my brain goes and I pull from my library and, and then I pull up the song, and go, same melody. So, I mean, I don't know. You remember a band called uh, Cherry Bomb? Yes. So they're, they're called Hey Violet now, right? I think they're called Hey Violet. Um, okay. So they had a song. It was, you know, um, uh, Too Many Faces or something. I can't remember the name of the song, but the intro was like, You Too. The whole intro was The Streets Have No Name. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's the producer doing that. But he's doing it. And the song was great. The song was a hit. But the producer created this thing for this band that they didn't need because the song Mm -hmm. by itself was amazing. So Mm -hmm. if you don't make music for yourself and stop pulling from your influences to where anybody can pick it up Immediately and and the person with the, you know, the person with the ear is gonna always be the musician or it's always gonna be the producer, goes, Oh, that song is this, and they stole it from David Bowie or or whatever. But the the audience isn't gonna recognize that they've heard the song before. That's mm-hmm. why bands do it. Right. right. They right. do it because it's ear candy, the audience goes, Oh, I like that. That's really cool. I've never heard it before, but they have have heard it a million but, times.
1: I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. Ear candy, and and technically, that's the job of a good producer is to package your sentiment to the audience in a way that's uh, uh, invite, inviting, right? But still holding true to what you're trying to portray.
2: Yeah, don't don't change the band to become somebody that they're not. Just right. Make it palpable, right? Make, make it That's so it. that people go, oh, I really like that. What is it? And of course, you know, the, every chord has been used a million times and every chord progression has been used a million times, but it's the way you do it as an artist, how you feel good about it, that matters. And if you don't sell a fucking record, who cares? You made the song you wanted to make. It sounds the way you wanted it to sound. You, you, you say what you want to say, you play what you want to play. Uh, you know, I, I, I did a, a song on this record with a kid called Keith Longo. So talented. Um, and I, I was looking for a solo. The song's called Riptide and I sent it to my band guys all had a shot Island and Brian. Uh, I sent it to Pete, my all guitar player. Um, I sent it to three other guitar players. And then I had this guy, Kevin Holland, who um, is in a band called uh, Sons of Silver that we've toured with a few times. And I really, really like his playing. Uh, And I had Kevin had a go at it. And um, out of all those guys, the guy who's never played with me was Mm -hmm. the one who gave me the solo because he didn't fucking care. That's right. He he played it. Ah. He heard the song and said, this is how the solo needs to go. And that's what he did. Even my own guitar player, Peter Klatt, didn't give me the solo that I was looking for because he, and I know he's going to see this and Pete, I love you, (laughs) but he didn't hear it the
1: way I was hearing the song. That's right. But it is the... I don't give a fuck mentality. And I say that cautiously because I don't want people to go into an audition or into a session or to a gig and be like, oh, fuck this. I don't give a shit. Nothing matters. No, that's not that's not what I'm saying. What we're saying is uh, it doesn't have this preciousness, right? We're like, look, I'm going to show up. I'm going to do me. And they're either going to like it or they're not. But I'm still going to go home and be confident and happy with my delivery.
2: Yeah, exactly, and that's and, and that's what you have to do. You know, you. There's a song on this record called on our new record, which um, you know we're going to talk about eventually. Absolutely uh, called Los Angeles, where I I I the second verse I'm, I emailed the mixers says, like, am I drunk when I'm singing the second verse because I sound so ridiculously passionate about what I'm singing that I feel as though I was probably hammered when I sang, what I sang and I don't remember it because I remember singing the part and going, yeah, that works. But then, and they're like, no man, like we have five different takes and that's kind of, you went after it because I wasn't concerned about who was listening. That's what I felt. That's what I wanted to do. And that's why
1: That's why we're musicians. That's why music makes the world go round. That's right. All inhibitions are gone. So let me ask you this. You've been writing for years. Have you ever written a song and you say to yourself, oh, man, this one's going to be the hit. This one's it. And it hasn't happened? Or... You know what I mean? Like tell tell me about that. Like cuz again, Far Behind you change all these songs that you say got you guys on the charts and kind of got you climbing up that ladder. Did you think, "Oh, guys, come on, this one's going to be it?"
2: Uh, no. I mean, I think when when we did Far Behind, the song was so personal for us because at the time when we wrote the song, Barty, it was the first day Barty our bass player had come to try out for the band. We needed a bass player. And at the time, we were in Mother Lovebone's old rehearsal studio in Ballard. Uh, because I was going to ask you it, about that, yeah. Well, Seattle, Seattle was – there weren't a lot of places to rehearse. There were very, very few rehearsal rooms. And we had this bigger room, uh, which we couldn't afford. And um, Kaz and Jackie – that's their names. I don't even know if they're still alive. They owned like three or four different buildings, and they had built them into uh, rehearsal studios. And – Jackie called me and said listen we have this small room it's got a heater in it but it's freezing fucking cold and it's got kind of this like loft area where you guys can store you know gear so maybe you just want to put your amps and shit on the floor and then put all your cases and stuff up there like that we'll take it it happened to be uh, Mother Lovebone's old room so that's where the whole kind of element of far behind happened for me As a lyricist, now, not only knowing Andy at the time uh, 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 when I was working at Flubog and now we're rehearsing in the studio in in this old space. And Andy's passed away about six months prior to this, uh, where I think I want I want to I want the song to kind of reflect about my relationship with him. And and we're here. And so I I just kind of started singing along. Now, Andy, I didn't mean to treat you bad, but I did away. And Andy, someone say your life was sad. And, and I just kind of meddled through it. Um, I, I was using the influence of, the, and the inspiration of The Room to kind of drive the lyric. I would never have guessed that song would have been the song that continues to pay my rent. It, had I sang it now, Andy, I didn't mean to treat you bad. It never would have done what it did. I changed it when we recorded the demos easter sunday of of 92 to now maybe just on a whim i didn't have all the lyrics written but i kind of could make my way through the song and that up the, the demo version ended up being the version that's on the debut album from those easter sunday sessions so um i guess long story short i never thought that was going to be a hit i was a it was a ballad to me i always thought you and cover me were going to be the songs that were going to take us to the next level. Um, Just because I felt lyrically and musically, they were so much better because far behind is four fucking chords. Yeah. The whole song.
1: Right. You know, the whole song. But Dylan said, I mean, look, three or four chords. Exactly. It's all takes, you know, but in all the bands that were coming out of Seattle
2: at the time had more than four chords. Right, right. Pearl Jam. I mean right. save for the song Black, really, and even that has that has a core has a full on chord change in the middle of the song. Um everybody was doing something different. So I kinda thought Far Behind would be Ah, oh, it's gonna be a song that people pay attention to, but I don't think it's gonna be a hit. When I wrote the song Um The Bridge on Disappearing in Airports, with uh, my guitar player, Mike Leslie, at the time, I really thought that song was going to be beyond ginormous. Now, had it come out as our second record, a box song, it probably would have been ginormous. But that's really the only other time in my career where I kind of thought, this is a hit song. Mm. That every other time, I've never had any kind of, emotional attachment like that or any kind of thought process, whether it was Lucy, Happy Pills, uh Into the Sun, Love Stories. I never thought this is a hit song.
1: That's pretty cool, man. And uh, do you consciously zoom out and say, you know what? I'm not going to have any emotional attachment to this material. Or is it something that just naturally happens?
2: I think it's just natural for me. I don't, okay. you know, I'm a zero fucks giving guy. Good. You know, um, Good. I like that when it comes to music, you know, uh, listen, and I, and I need to, I need to kind of clarify that statement because, uh, I do care, uh, when it, when it comes to the artists that I play with, or when I'm recording a song, I want the band to be connected as a band, as a unit. So I care about that. I care that they're that there's zero fucks given, is because they're so attached to the song that they don't give a fuck. That their <laughs> fingers just do what they do, or their hands just do what they do. So Good. that's what I mean by that, and I and I, and I want to clarify that because I think it's important to understand that I do care about the songs. I just don't care about what I'm doing in those songs.
0: Being a career musician is more than just gigs and sessions. Are you a career musician? Find out on the Career Musician Podcast, streaming everywhere.
2: Hey, this is Kevin Martin from Candlebox, and you're listening to the Career Musician Podcast with
1: Nomad. Be sure to subscribe to The Career
2: Musician Podcast and like The Career Musician on all social platforms to stay up to date on news and topics that affect your music career.
1: When you talk about Andy, you're talking about Andrew Wood.
2: Yeah, Andy Wood from Mother Love. Or Malfunction, yeah.
1: There might be some people who aren't hip, but... I mean, can you do a little quick, deeper dive on Andy Wood? Sure. Andy
2: was a singer-songwriter that um, was a native to Washington State. He was born, I believe, on Bainbridge Island. Um, he had two uh, two brothers that um, are both musicians, Kevin and Brian. Uh, Andy started a band, um, I think I want to say like 84, 85, with a drummer named Regan Hagar and his brother uh, Kevin called Malfunction, which was – Hands down, one of the coolest fucking bands to ever come out of Seattle, uh, right. and and Andy was, Andy was like Freddie Mercury. He would walk around in a fur coat. He would rock around in Reebok pumps and a Lakers jersey and you know um, Nike shorts. I mean, he was he was out there, man. And but he was the kindest, most gentle human being rock star ever I, I ever came across. He was he was just such a. Uh, such a beautiful soul.
1: Like, you know, just, Mm. hey, man, how are you? What's going on? Fuck, you know? I think, I always thought it, like, malfunction and Andrew Wood as, like, the rock answer to George Clinton and P-Funk. Yeah. You know what I mean? mean, That's a great great example. Yeah. Yeah, they both live on either side of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean.
2: sweet spirit. God just a kind kind he is you're right he is like fucking he's like George Clinton m- mixed with uh uh what's the bass uh, what's the bass player with the fucking it was a oh, uh,
1: uh, Bootsy he's,
2: Collins He's like Bootsy Collins and George Clinton <laughs> like he he had this soul that was so magical and and he wrote these songs that you know just Andrew Wood was the biggest rock star to come out of Seattle. And of course, Chris Cornell was there and Lane Staley's there and Eddie Vedder's there. And, you know, all those guys um, and, and Mark Lanigan, and, you know, a lot of these, Ann Wilson and Nancy and, and Hendrickson. But Andy just had something that everybody says it. Everybody says that there's that one artist that has something that nobody else has. And that was Andy. And, um, and Chris didn't even have it. Chris did not have that charisma. Chris was an amazing singer, mm. brilliant fucking lyricist, and yeah. incredible talent. I mean, they, you know, have we've all seen the, the Pearl Jam documentary, I'm, I'm assuming, where yes, yes. Chris talks about how they had a competition of writing songs, he and Andy. Uh and I think Andy always won. Um <laughs> But Chris didn't have the charisma that Andy had, and Andy was Freddie Mercury, man, he was Bootsy Collins, he was George Clinton, he was David Bowie. He was um that soul that just couldn't be grounded and heroin's the only thing that grounded him.
1: I love that, man. I love that. Wow. So, look, dude, how does it feel and again set, setting all uh pretentiousness aside and all of these preconceived ideas and notions you have rubbed shoulders and elbows and a lot more <laughs> in touring vans and whatnot <laughs> with some of the greatest artists uh to have had a hand in American culture, right. So when we think about the the history of American music, we talk about the blues and how it evolved into the variation, you know, the, the variations of gospel and blues, and then it evolved into rock, rock and roll, and it evolved to this, and it evolved to that, and then here come the the late eighties, the early nineties, the mid nineties. You are in the eye of the hurricane of this cultural. Experience. Phenomenon. Phenomenon, thank you. And now you zoom out all these years, like you said, when you're hanging with Corey Glover and Vernon Reed, you guys are still homies, you guys are still tight, and you're still out there doing it. What does it feel like to have been a contributing member to this movement? Uh and still rocking on, still going. <laughs> Well, not right now. I'm fucking locked down. Um, (laughs) I know, but soon, don't worry. In a couple more months, we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's,
2: it's, I get asked that question a lot. Um, I think the the interesting thing is, is, you know, like I said earlier, I'm the reluctant lead singer in a rock band. Um, I've crossed paths with some of the most amazing musicians. I've, I've, I've run in, you know, the circle of, great talent Um, over these 30 years. I'm having more fun now than I had in the nineties. And that's mainly because um, the group of guys that I'm playing with and the, and the crew that I have that's surrounding me right now is so much a you know, salt of the earth for me. And, and there's so much like me and, and I think that that's, really important. Um, But to have been a contributing member of something that philosophically changed a lot of people's lives, metaphorically changed a lot of people's lives, um, uh, epically changed a lot of people's lives. To be lumped into that and, and to you know, it's it's really interesting. There are those there are those pages that that our name comes up on, and then there are those pages where they don't. Um, and f- to to be an artist that knows what Candlebox did, and knows what Candlebox still does, uh, and knows those relationships we've had with those bands and and our fans and you know, Woodstock ninety-four and three hundred thousand people and touring Europe with Henry Rollins. To know that that we are woven in that cloth um, without being uh I guess connected to it um via words on you know the the worldwide interwebs uh it doesn't really change it for me. Um I I'm I'm comfortable with where I am I'm happy with where I'm at um I I've gone through all the heartbreak I've gone through all the um the frustration and anger and and you know uh why are we not considered you know a Seattle band or something like that I've been through all that shit that was years and years and years ago right now for me um you know, if somebody if somebody were to say to me you're you're being considered for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um I would have to laugh that off because it doesn't really matter to me. You know, I I've often said that maybe one of the contributing factors to Chris's um Chris Cornell's death of course yeah. um would probably be Pearl Jam's induction into the rock and roll hall of fame. Oh. And, and I, and I only say that because I, I knew Chris and I knew Chris very, very well. And and I knew him only because I worked with Susan, his ex-wife at Fluvog, which is where I met all these musicians that would come into the store to get their flyers. Susan was managing everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chris and I had an interesting relationship where we would talk about music and we would talk about, um, what Andy was doing because they were roommates and what did Andy play you anything? I'm like, no, he didn't come in and play me anything. You know, he's got this song and and it's pretty good. And I'm like, so we had that kind of interesting relationship. A lot of people would say, Chris didn't give a shit about that.
1: Hmm.
2: I know Chris's insecurities and I always knew his insecurities and He was a lead singer and that's what he did. And that's what he always wanted to do. And he was so fucking good at it. And he was so talented. And there's so many records that we all have of these songs that talk about this insecurity. And if you, and if you're a lyricist, you see them and you, Mm -hmm. and you hear them in the songs. Mm -hmm. So I would laugh off if somebody said, Candlebox is, you know, going to be on the ballot. I'd be like, it's the stupidest thing in the fucking world because there's no reason we, we contributed something. Yes. Does it matter? N- not to me, to our fans. Absolutely. 100%. To me, I wrote songs. I loved. I sang about what I loved. Uh I love my band. I write songs. I love, do I care if anybody hears them? Yes. No. Maybe Chris was the consummate musician and he was the consummate professional and it had to have killed him
0: Mm. to
2: have Pearl Jam be inducted before him because that guy was so instrumental in so many things in Seattle. And he was behind so many great fucking records and it supported so many bands and gave every one of those bands so much love and push and support. And if I were him, I would have been fucking destroyed. I would have been destroyed. If I were Chris that's, Cornell,
1: that's tough, man.
2: Yeah, that's, and that's and, and it's my opinion. I don't yeah. know if anybody fucking cares. I don't yeah, know if this just going to make you it. Painted
1: in that perspective. That's.
2: I'm that's just saying, you know, because uh, right. I knew him. And I knew, I know how much, I know how much he loved, you know, being a musician. Mm. And, uh, and that's, you know, I still think about, you know, that waking up to that text and it's a dark day, man.
1: Absolute man. So, I mean, yeah, we've all experienced those dark days, uh, when our various heroes fall. Um. With that being said, like you've been talking about, and I love this, I love hearing all these stories, uh, you've rubbed shoulders with everybody in that quote-unquote scene from uh, Chris Cornell to uh, Lane Staley and, of course, beginning with Andy Wood and, uh, you know, the list goes on. Mike McCready, I'm sure. Um,
2: Stone and Jeff, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when they they were doing their – when they were looking for a singer, I got a hold of their cassette tape and I sang on like four of the songs and – gave it to Stone. I was like, hey, man, listen, I know you're looking for a singer. And he's like, who the fuck are you? And I was like, I'm, doesn't matter, man. I, I know Chris and those cats and I sang on your cassette. Like, wow. He's like, how the fuck did you get the music? <laughs> but I mean, it, you know, back in, you gotta remember back in 1988, 89, that town was so fucking small, man.
1: Mm. So small. This is pre-blowing up, just before the grunge movement. Uh, well, it was, it was starting. Cons- it was starting. Right, on the cusp,
2: yeah. Yeah. It was probably, yeah. I mean it was previous to singles being made and you know, right. uh I mean, bands were making noise. Uh Green River was rad, Mother Love Bone was rad, you know, and um Stone and Jeff were looking for a singer. And I got a hold of wow. a cassette tape and sang on some of the demos and gave it Stone. I remember walking up to him at uh there's a um where the Nordstrom used to be down on um I believe it's Fourth Avenue. I've lived in Seattle in so long I can't remember the street but uh, yeah. there's like a, a Bon Marche or some shit there there's a they put a new uh, like outdoor seating area or some shit and I was like hey man here's, I sang on these demos I, don't, yeah, I know you're looking for a singer but yeah I mean that's it goes back so I'm sorry I keep interrupting but yeah I ran in that circle and I knew those guys yeah
1: no I love that I love that that's so cool alright so I don't want to keep focusing on oh what was this experience like what were these experiences like but I did have to mention this Letterman three times.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but never Leno. But never Leno. <laughs> okay, All just right. to show spoken you how much like, cooler the East Coast is than the fucking West
1: Coast. See, spoken like a true, like yeah, yeah. So you gave me this, but you didn't give me this. You fucking bastard! No, yeah, Tell me can. about Letterman three times. Come on, that's fucking cool, it's man. Rad. Dave Dave was
2: great. He loves he loved the Seattle scene. He's a he's yeah. a lovely guy. Uh, the first time we played it, um, we, we did um, Far Behind, and, um, and uh, Jimmy Johnson was the, uh, was one of the guests, and he just won his um, like second Super Bowl with the Cowboys, and, and David came to the dressing room, and he's like, man, I'm, I'm just really proud of you guys. You got three nights across the street, because we were doing three nights at the Roseland across the street uh, at the time. And um sold out and that's when um the Rangers won the Stanley Cup on the second night of our, our show there at Rosalind. So um yeah, you know, great memories and Dave was a big supporter and, and he loved us and and um and always took time out to come to our dressing room and hey guys, how are you? Welcome back. Record's doing great. You know, and it wasn't he wasn't doing Madonna a favor, he didn't like Madonna. You know, it was <laughs> he liked the band, he, he loved the music, he loved what we were doing and and um That's cool. And he was a and he was a great guy, and it was a great show to play, you know. And and Paul and the band were, again, just super gracious and and generous people. It was a it was a really amazing show
1: to play. I find that's always the truth. The higher up the ladder you go, the more gracious and, and appreciative people are. You know, yeah. A lot of times we place people on these giant pedestals, and we think, uh, boy, that they're you know they're deities, so to speak. But the higher up you go, you, the more we realize, you know what? We are all uh, fortunate to yeah. be doing what we what we love doing, right? Oh, and there's crazy ego involved in a lot of shit too, you know. Which you
2: yeah, can't, you can't get away from that.
1: Yeah, that's the narcissism that goes with the game of being what we do, of being creative, right? That's yeah. You think.
2: Yep. Yeah.
1: yeah, but I think it is a nice balance. So okay, so we talked about all this. This is amazing. I love this. Getting back to the concept of what this podcast is about, a career musician. You are truly the epitome of a career musician. Now, self-admittedly, you said that you were a reluctant lead singer. Lead singer. You were a drummer. Yeah. Can you talk about that? How the hell did that unfold? Well, I started playing drums when I was, uh, 10, 12,
2: 10 or 12. Um, and that's what I always wanted to be. You know I mean? we And especially when we toured the Rush, I was like, God, I would watch Neil play every night. Um, not to say that, you know, watching, uh, uh, Will Calhoun was any different, but, um, yeah, I started out as a drummer. I played a bunch of punk bands and, and, um, I was, uh, asked to sing on some demos, you know, a guy named Rick Vaughn, who was a producer to studio, um, was starting a band and he, excuse me, had written some songs and, uh, S- Scott was playing with him and, I had met Scott like through a friend at a birthday party. He's like, "Oh, we should, you know, should have Kevin come down and sing on these demos and stuff." And and I was like, "Well, I'm not really a singer." And he's like, "No, I've heard you sing. Scott's heard you sing like other shit." And and uh, yeah. So I I sang on the demos, and that was it. I it became Candlebox, and I've never been a drummer since.
1: That's (laughs) that's not true. I played
2: in bands as drummer, but like. Yeah. I miss it. I I I that's that's what I always wanted to do. I just at, But at, you still
1: play? Heart. Do you still play for fun? When I can,
2: I do sound checks and stuff with the band. Um Nice. I you know, I I would give anything to to play drums in a in a band again. I I miss it. I love it. It's uh it's It's really the essence of who I am as a as a as a musician, and I use it a lot um when I sing and when I write lyrics and and my phrasing and stuff's all based on rhythmic elements of how it can fit in and out of the groove of the song so
1: I love that. One One aspect of creating music informs the other. And I, it seems to be true of so many musicians that we are multifaceted, even though the, the general public might only know us as one thing, right? right? Well, Chris but Cornell was a somebody, drummer.
2: What's that? Chris Cornell was a drummer. Oh, see, that's something that I didn't know. Yeah, when I first saw them, they were a three-piece. He was playing drums and singing.
1: Wow, so freaking cool, man! Yep. All right, look, anybody can look this up on Wikipedia or do a little Googleology on you. But you have dabbled with other bands. We got High Watt, we got the Gracious Few. I mean, the High watts Sorry. Um, how how does this unfold? Do you find like, oh boy, wait a minute, my my attention is being diverted over here. How do I uh, juggle all these things at one time, or is it a natural evolution of Oh, for this eighteen months, I was on this project, and then I it evolved to this. And you know, can you talk about that, or do you share? Yeah, you I mean, I think you know, every
2: I think every musician kind of looks for an outlet. Um, when I did the watts, that was basically because I couldn't do anything as Candlebox. When we when we broke up the band in two thousand, uh, late ninety nine two thousand, trying to get out of our deal with Warner Brothers and Maverick Records, it backfired on us. So we were kind of locked into that. Couldn't do anything as Candlebox, so I went out and started the watts uh, I signed a deal with a, re- a record label called Gold Circle, which was um, started by one of the founders of Gateway Computers. Uh, I did this um, simple little record deal. It was, you know, not a lot of money, and and but I had written, you know, fifteen or twenty songs. They were supposed to be like the fourth Candlebox record, um, but they weren't. So. I did them with the high Watts and I did them with my friends. I had uh trace Ritter from chalk farm on guitar, Dean Butterworth, who was uh, at the time playing with um, Ben Harper and the innocent criminals uh, on drums uh, went on to uh, good Charlotte and Morrissey and all that sort of shit. Uh, my, my guitar player, Robbie Allen, spider Aaron Allen was playing with me on guitars. And then this bass player named Jason later, who was in a band called first slide. So just to, I threw these guys in a room. I said, I got these 15 songs. Let's make them work. Uh, and we did. And we made a record. And we made it on our own and, and uh, in a rehearsal studio here in Los Angeles. Gold Circle folded, gave me the masters back, and I put the record out on my own. Uh, I think it sold 10, 15,000 copies or something. Uh, I did a di- distribution deal with MRI records. Uh, and that did well uh for them and they were happy and i was like oh you know i'll do this for a few years i went out and i toured europe with seether on that came back 2006 came around uh warner brothers was done with the lawsuit they were releasing a best of we put the candle box back together went out and toured on that for a few years got bored with that um because kind of the same shit started happening again that always happened in the 90s um we hadn't really grown up as Young men at that point still, uh, apparently. So um, I did um, the uh, Gracious Few record with the guys from Live, Chad Patrick and, and Chad. And uh, Ed was going off to do solo record and the guys wanted to continue on. So we did the Gracious Few, which was a blast, an absolute blast. Uh, I was also working on some stuff with my bass player, Adam, with, with uh, Morgan Rose, which ended up becoming Le Projet. Morgan, of course, is the drummer for Seven Dust and an incredibly talented, brilliant musician.
1: I was just say Seven Dust, yeah.
2: Great songwriter. I mean, right. he's, that guy's not a drummer; he's a fucking songwriter that plays drums. Um, Love it. And yeah, and so we had that. So for me, it kind of always—I uh, actually played drums in a in a little a little band called Stealing Venus for a while. I was like three girls. Um, they wanted me to play drums for them, which was hilarious. And then this guitar player named Frankie, um, who was really talented. Um, But, you know, I I always just kind of, if I get bored, I look for something to um, spark, you know, to to spark my energy. The beauty of what I have now with Brian, Island, Adam and Dave is that I don't look for anything because I love playing with these guys so much. So uh, I'm not I'm not searching for anything. But at those moments in my career that we spoke about, I was looking for something different. You know, I was not happy with uh with the band uh that I was playing with at the time, you know, which is a sad place to be as a musician because you really wanna be where I'm at now your whole life. You know, I mean, uh I guess the reason the stones are still together is because they're billionaires, but uh, they have to like one another, you know, in some way, shape or form. At,
1: at some point they have there has to be some likability here and there. Yeah. What I I love the fact that if you zoom out from a business model perspective The fact that all of your success with Candlebox has enabled you to do all of these different ventures, and at least have some traction, so you don't have to start from the ground up, right? Well, what do you think that's fair? No, no,
2: no, not at all. I mean, not necessarily not at all. I mean, the high watts, the high watts. The only reason I got the deal was because the A and R guy was my radio guy at Maverick Records. So that was a relationship thing. Sold zero records. I mean, 15,000 records is nothing. Um, The Gracious Few, that was a labor of love. There was no money in it. It cost us money to make that record. Mm -hmm. It cost us money to tour. We toured in a bus. We slept at um, RV parks. No hotels. Uh, We cooked out at those RV parks. mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it we really we never used the live name or the candle box name at the Gracie's View.
1: Wow. So you're toughing it out, yeah.
2: Oh yeah, man. Like we did door yeah. deals. Like we had a we had an agent's like, I can't get you guys more than, you know, two thousand dollars a night. And they were like, We'll just do a door deal. So wow. if it's twenty five bucks to get in, yeah. And we get a hundred people that's fine, okay. and we did. We ended up we ended up doing door deals that actually that benefited us more because we didn't have to pay promoters fees. We didn't have to pay you know booking fees mm-hmm. in the venues. So, but that twenty five hundred dollars or two thousand or eighteen hundred bucks a night we were making kept that bus running. Paid for the gas for that bus. Mm-hmm. Bought the food at the Walmart or wherever that's we were right. stopping. And when we would park at the KOA campgrounds right. or whatever, that's you know we we would cook outside on a fucking grill, like
1: but. That was all fueled by your passion. Yes. And 100%. that's amazing. Yeah.
2: We, we love, and I swear to God, Sean, Chad, Patrick, Chad, and myself, we, we keep threatening to put that back together because we had so much fun with that tour and that record. And those guys are, are incredibly talented. Um, that's awesome. they really are. I mean, Chad and Pat and Chad, I don't think they get enough, um, credit for the success of live. Uh, and I, and I love Ed. I think Ed's incredibly talented and that's, and I'm not disrespecting him at all um, because he really is a great songwriter and a great singer. But I think people forget when you have a singer as powerful as, as an Ed Kowalczyk, you forget about the band that backs him up and that supports him. And I'm telling you, man, when we, when we wrote that record's interesting because the happy songs that kind of have a really kind of bright, vibrant tinge to them, those are the West Coast writing sessions. The really dark shit—that's the stuff we wrote in, in Pennsylvania, and and those are some of my favorite songs. I mean, I, uh, I
1: love that stuff. The yeah,
2: there's some stuff. there's some darkness in that in that Gracious View record. That and a lot of people don't even know about it. I think I think we only sold like uh, twenty twenty two thousand records. That's a great record, and and for those people that aren't that are watching this or hearing this or whatever, if you haven't heard the Gracious View, that record will change your fucking life. It changed my life.
1: Mm. See, that's a, that's a good that's a good reference point to check out. I love that, and that again, digging deeper beyond the sheen of "Hey, I'm a rock star." Check out my happy song. Yeah, let's go deep. Let's yeah. really dig down. All right, hey, let me ask you this because we were just talking about it. You're on tour your whole life. All these bands all these different variations incarnations, uh, or, you know, permutations of whatever creative project you're working on. What kind of health and lifestyle do you adhere to, especially on the road? Cause don't you think life on the road can be tough? Well, you know, I, I drink way too much, but,
2: um, <laughs> you know, we, like I said earlier, you know, I love my, I love my guys, my crew and my band right now, my best friends and, um, and we all get along so well, you know, we don't, none of us do drugs. I mean, you know, we, we smoke pot or we eat, you know, eat edibles or, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll take mushrooms, but, um, we, we take care of ourselves. You know, I mean, I'm 51 years old. Adam's, my bass player's 53. Dave is 55. Um, Island's fucking an asshole at the age of like 33 uh brian's 42 okay uh so i mean we take care of ourselves you know i i used to cook for the band um i used to take nice. out a yeah i used to take out a crock pot and a uh the green pan thing where i could like you know saute stuff up and chicken and stuff but i used to cook a lot but we don't do those long runs anymore so i don't do that we we go out for you know maybe 10 10 12 days at a time so I tend to uh, try to find the healthiest restaurant I can, you know, for lunch. Uh, or if the venue's, produ- you know, providing lunch, you know, we have a requested menu, which is uh, brown rice and you know, uh, grilled chicken, you know. I mean, it's it's really kind of about staying somewhat healthy, it's, you know, save for the amount of tequila and whiskey we drink on the road. It's we're we're pretty good guys. There's no drugs. It's balance, yeah, yeah. I mean, balance. It, we're, nobody's doing cocaine, you know. So yeah. thank God good. for that. Um, but you know, I mean, we do run across the, the you know the bands that we that we've toured with that are still doing cocaine, which I think is. I mean, I mean, like you're fucking fifty years old, dude. Like, you're trying to figure yeah. yourself, but crazy. Um, yeah. You know, leave that shit for when you're a kid. Um, yeah, you can still yeah. break stuff. You know, at the age of fifty-two, um, <laughs> I've broken several guitars, but. Yeah, I mean it's really it's a balance of keeping your your sanity, you know, and but if if you have what I have where you got guys that you love like your brothers. Mm-hmm. Um the fact that we can sit up my sound guy Carlos, front of house sound guy and tour manager Carlos. Mm-hmm. Dave Mortensen, Memphis, Tennessee as our techs, Adam on bass, Dave Cruising on drums, or Robin, depending on uh whether Dave's, you know, uh, having surgery or something, Robin Diaz. Uh, well, Robin
1: Diaz, a great yeah.
2: buddy of mine. I love Robin. Oh, he's so talented. Yeah. Um, Brian and Island, we'll sit up after a show, three, four, four thirty in the morning.
1: That's awesome. Talking as a band, that's yeah. a rarity, man. It, uh, amen. Yeah. Yes, that is a rarity. Yeah. Wow. I, I feel like that, the, like right there, that's a great segue to the words of wisdom. And I almost feel like you answered my question of words of wisdom. It's about balance. It's about camaraderie, yep. you know, anything else you'd want to add to that? Respect. Especially if, respect. Okay. Respect.
2: Yeah. Respect, man. You got it. You have to respect one another. And, yeah. um, and you have to respect your, your talent and your craft. Um, you know, it's. I guess if I have any regret at all, it's that I didn't know Pete and Barty and Scott well enough when we made our first record, where I could have gone and said, listen, you're out of control, and you, mm-hmm. I need to, you need to come back to what we're doing here because I know you, and you're going to spin out, and this is going to hurt you in the long run. And mm-hmm. had I had what I have now with my guys then... I think Box would be in an entirely different position. Mm. You know, I, I, I think we really into the sun would probably have been our second record, not mm. our fourth. And we would have had some great successes and we would have probably continued on to maybe a chili peppers path where
0: wow.
2: we could sell out arenas still, you know, mm. we would never have been the food fighters or Pearl jam or anything like that, but, we could have been, I mean, listen, you know, I think the, the Chili Peppers bring John Frusciante back every time they need a fucking hit. But, <laughs>
1: um,
2: but you know, I saw the Chili Peppers in Vancouver in uh, 1988, uh, New Year's Eve. Hillel Slovak was still alive and the band was phenomenal and they were visceral and they were everything I wanted them to be. Um, I saw them years later without uh, Hillel. Uh, and I don't, I think, uh, it was right before Fishante joined the band and I thought, I don't even know what this is. And then I saw them with Fishante on Mother's Milk and I was like, oh yeah, this is the band. Th- this is what you expect of the Chili Peppers. And I think Candlebox could have had that. Had I had the relationship that Anthony and Flea had had, maybe with Pete. You know, if Pete and I had had that long term growing up relationship where I could have said to him, you know, you're fucking things up or he could have said to me, you're fucking things up. You're ruining things. We're we're going to crash this plane and we we can't crash this plane. That's my biggest regret. So what I have to say about that longevity or what, what you were asking earlier is respect is of the utmost importance and not only for yourself, but for your bandmates,
1: you know. That's grounding, man. So grounding. Yeah. What's next? You mentioned Los Angeles, a new record. Got a new record coming out. Uh, we're doing,
2: we're talking about doing a documentary about Candlebox. Uh, yeah. Because it's, wow. it's the 25th anniversary of the Lucy record this year, which is crazy to me. 25.
1: That's yeah. amazing. Yeah.
2: And the band will be 30 years old coming uh, January twenty. 20- first of next year
1: wow Candlebox
2: will be 30 years old man
1: incredible yeah incredible anything you can divulge about the new record or are you just kind of keep it, taking it one day at a time oh, I'd, I'd
2: love to divulge it man it's it's, yeah. it's fucked up This records all over the place it's uh <laughs> I hate it I love it I'm not sure it confuses me um <laughs> I, the, I mean, I, the fact that Brian and Island haven't quit because I replaced half the shit they played um, is beyond me. Uh, yeah. It's the last full-length album I'll make. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how much longer Candlebox will be a band. Um, I guess maybe... I should probably address that as well. You know, the, the interesting thing about Cannon box is we were never really the sum of our parts. We were always kind of the whole, right? So a lot of people will come up to Brian after show and say, Pete, that was amazing. They don't even know he's not Pete. You <laughs> know what I'm saying? So, and and that makes me feel good because they're listening to the music. They don't care who's there, who's playing it. They just want to hear the songs. You know, yeah. and when I, and when I started this band, uh, with Scott back in, um, 1991, January 21st, 22nd, whatever it was when Rick left the band, uh, and I kind of made the decision to push forward with it. Uh, that's all I cared about was making music and, um, not Kevin Martin of Candlebox, Peter Klett of Candlebox, Barty Martin of Candlebox, or Scott Mercado of Candlebox, Candlebox, and whoever plays that stuff, whoever's playing it, that's all that matters. Those songs um, have to stand the test of time, hopefully, and uh, and and i um, I think they
1: are, right. Because as long as the message is being delivered, the vehicle uh, doesn't matter. Uh, aesthetics, aesthetics don't matter. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, we went from fucking V8s to electric cars. We're still getting around,
1: you know. Right. That's right. That's so, right. Amazing, brother. This has been so awesome. Thank you, Kevin Martin, for being a, a guest here on the Career Musician Podcast. My pleasure. I'm so stoked to have you. Uh, hey, before we wrap, can I ask you a, a rapid fire question barrage, real quick, just sure. for fun? Sure. All right, and especially the fact that we're in quarantine right now, it might even be more fun. <laughs> All right, here we go. You ready? Favorite food? Italian. Favorite libation? Whiskey. Love it. Favorite sport? Football. Now that you have tons of it, how do you spend your free time? (laughs) Certainly not (laughs) masturbating. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: Best answer yet. I love that. playing, Playing guitar. Oh, nice, 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 nice. And when you were on long flights traversing the globe, how did you spend that time? Watching movies. Watching movies. Perfect. Favorite movie or TV series that you're digging right now?
2: Oof. I mean, listen, everybody's talking about the Ozark and that shit. Um, yeah. Bosch. I don't know if you've heard about it. I have. I'm prime. Bosch is so good, man. Uh but I've watched, I watched the Dublin murders, which was amazing. Okay. Um, I just watched that Ben Affleck film, uh, the way back. Yes. And it's, uh, there's a lot in there. You know, yeah. I, uh, I was kind of moved by that film and I was like, because he struggles, man, you know, Ben still struggles with that addiction and it's cost him his marriage. And, um, it's a good film. There's a there's a dark message behind it. Um, and there's a bright, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a way out. For people who have addictions, you know, I mean, um, God, I deal with it all the time. You know, I, I had this kid playing with me, Mike Leslie, who was a brilliant guitar player, but he's bipolar and he would, you know, whether it was drugs or alcohol, he just couldn't control himself and I had to kick him out of the band. It was a really hard thing for me because I said to him, I was like, I've already had a Pete in my band. I can't have another one, you know, and that's really hard. That's a hard thing. And, uh, and I know people kind of, you know, I mean, maybe have made jokes about this movie with Ben and, but, uh, the way back was a, was an interesting story. And it was a, it was a, uh, it was cathartic in a sense of, um, not, not, you know, I not only for you know. I think for me, really kind of realizing what kind of world we live in now, but what people have to go through that just are struggling with demons, man. Like it's hard. A lot of people out there that just cannot find space for their thoughts.
1: Yeah. Wow. We're, we're That's some, deep. We're, I'm a lucky one, man. I'm a lucky one. Amen to that, bro. Okay, the last song or latest artist, band, song, whatever that you've listened to that you're not a part of, that you're not working on. So music that you've listened to just for the fun, just for the hell of it. Uh, Greg Upchurch's new song that he wrote, the drummer for
2: Three Doors Down. Nice. He wrote it, recorded it, played every instrument. It's called Skin to Skin. And uh, it's about what's going on right now. And uh, Greg's a really talented musician. He actually played in the High Watts Uh, before um, he left to go play for Puddle of Mud. And um, so he was my first drummer. And then I got Dean Butterworth, uh, which comparable musicians, oddly enough. I mean, both fucking brilliant drummers. Um, But yeah, Greg released a song, man, called Skin to Skin, which is about what we're going through uh, as human Uh, beings. And and it's great. It's a great fucking song. And he's a drummer. I mean, you know. Playing guitar, playing bass, singing, playing drums—it's killer.
1: Love it. He's, he's the constant musician. Love it. Yeah. All right. Shopping. This one's a tough one. Shopping online or brick and mortar? Obviously, right now in quarantine, there's no kind of shopping we could do. When you could shop, what do you prefer? Uh, you know, like I said earlier, I'm a little social, so I like to
2: get out. I like to go out there and kind of nice. get my hands dirty with stuff and come home with dirty fingernails, but. I like um, Yeah, you know, we I, – I, my wife has a clothing line and she has a, a store here in L.A. and, and a shipping and receivings in behind it. So, you know, it's it's nice to get out and kind of get your hands dirty and, and grab some fabrics or, you know, do the grocery shopping and stuff. And we both cook. So um, I love a grocery store and I love a, a farmer's market. Um, yes. And I'm, I've started baking bread over the past couple of weeks. So I'm really into that. Um, and I'm looking for, you know, I'd, I'd like to kind of, I think when things kind of blow over, I'll, I'll find some, some new starters out there at some of the markets and kind of come up with some interesting breads, but, and I've, I've just planted tomatoes and shit.
1: I mean, we're, I'm a homebody, man. Like, you know, I, I, I like love it. That. Okay. Wait a You said so much. I got to unpack this. First of all, what's the name of your wife's clothing line? Natalie Martin collection. Natalie Martin collection. Yeah. We can find that online. It's on all, it's Instagram online, all the bullshit. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And then you mentioned that Italian food is your favorite, but is that what you also enjoy cooking the most?
2: Yeah, well, I, we, we cook a lot of Italian, but I, I also do like um, – I do pork. I do a spicy pork. I like Cajun food a lot. Nice. Um, so I do a lot of that. I am I, make a mean uh, red snapper. Um,
1: nice.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I like to cook a lot uh, when I'm home. That's what I do, you know. So, that's right. like that's tonight, right. Natalie's cooking because I'm doing this, and we're having. Um, uh, we made our we make our own pizza dough, so we're doing like a spicy Italian sausage with a with a four heirloom tomato, different heirloom tomato sauce. Bro, um, bro, well, what's your address?
1: I'm coming over. <laughs> Fuck this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and the tomatoes grow right out back, so you know we pull them out. So.
1: Yeah, I'm Cuban Italian. I love cooking. Yeah, so it's that's great. all I do. Yeah, it's great. All right, last two. You've already collaborated with a lot of people. If you had one dream collaboration, what would it be, dead or alive? Fuck. I know it's a it's a stumper. I don't care if you name three; it doesn't matter. God, that's hard, man. Joe Strummer. Josh um, love
2: it. John Bonham, oh yes. And I really love. I'd love to write with Patti Smith. Ah,
1: that's good stuff, man. I love Patti Smith. Yeah, yeah. dope. Talking punk about rock. like the essence of punk and the yep. New York scene. Yeah, wow. I mean, and it's finally- hard. You know, it's
2: hard for me because I grew up. I grew up on punk rock. So yeah, like the Ramones are and the Clash. Those are my favorite bands. Like mm. you know. I, I would say, I mean, to sit with Joey and write a song would have been a fucking dream come true, but I would rather maybe write it with Marky, you
1: know,
2: <laughs> who was like the fucking crazy schizoid guy, you know. Like
1: I don't know, it's it's weird. Uh, yeah,
2: that's, that's, that's awesome. a hard question.
1: That's awesome. And finally, what would you do if you weren't a career musician?
2: I wanted to be a. I wanted to be a psychiatrist. That's what I went to school for. I love I
1: love reading people. That's cool. No, it's terrible. Well, no, because it's cool because so much of those skills come with your job as a lead singer. You have to first of all, you have to learn how to read a room. Yeah, so that's that true. room has five people in it or five thousand or fifty thousand. You got to read that shit. It's
2: true, you do. You do. Yeah,
1: I love. I love. I always wanted to be a psychiatrist. Maybe that's why I'm a lead singer. There you go. That is. Beautiful. I have control. That's right. <laughs> Kevin, I am so grateful to have you once again, my brother. Thank you so much. My, the pleasure has been mine, and thanks, man. Empowering musicians with solutions for a sustainable career in the music industry.
2: Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.
0: The goal of the Career Musician Podcast is to provide valuable insight aimed at supporting working musicians. Please show your support by listening, downloading, subscribing, sharing, liking, and leaving a review. Hey, this is Kevin Martin from
2: Candlebox, and I'm a career musician.
1: Hi. Just a nomad, a nowhere man Writing the songs in this one-man band A nomad